This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Welcome to episode three about system change, not climate change. The challenge for me was a young blockade Australia person dangling on a tripod above the massive container port in Melbourne. She said, I don't have all the answers, but surely people are working on this. So I spoke to Derek O'Keefe in Canada. He tells us about how they are exporting coal while their environment minister, who used to be the head of Greenpeace in Canada, is now in Europe spouting the global phase-out of fossil fuels. So there's a schizophrenia at the highest level and a huge amount of predatory delay. Derek is a socialist, and we talked about um, the great system changes proposed in the novel by Kim Stanley Robinson called Ministry for the Future. He said that we need, we need to think bigger and be more ambitious for ourselves. We shouldn't be talking of for our children and our grandchildren. We should be taking a leaf out of First Nations thinking, which says, do nothing until you think of the impact on the next seven generations. So thinking big with Derek O'Keefe. Now, contrasting with this is Simon Walker. Um, he's my colleague at 3CR, and he looks at fire ants. Climate change gives them an advantage, and Rhys Pianto from Invasive Species Australia makes a case for their eradication. It's quite riveting to listen to. I thought, oh, fire ants, but no, it's it's very interesting, and you can get involved as citizen scientists. Sometimes I think of ourselves as an invasive species. As Derek O'Keefe says, British Columbia and New South Wales were built really on the back of a gold rush mentality and now we are using big countries like us fossil fuel exporters we are using predatory delay to keep coal tar sands and gas profitable are we like the fire ants even benefiting from disaster capitalism or do we have the imagination to change our system now we're going to canada our theme is system change, not climate change. And 
Derek has been active in creating that change for the past 20 years. He's a, a writer from Vancouver called Derek O'Keefe. He's a socialist, activist, and um, I think you've taken a big part in the anti-war and environment movement. So thank you for coming on the show, Derek, and a, a shout out to Ian Angus, who is a friend of this show and who recommended you to me. And I think listeners will be keen to hear from you first about the wildfires and heat waves now sweeping such a vast territory in the north. And I want to know uh, about the media. Are coal, oil and gas ever mentioned in your media coverage? In relation to the worst wildfire season uh, in recent memory? Unfortunately, almost never in the mainstream uh, press. There will be some, I would say, some discussion generally about climate. Uh, create climate change creating conditions that uh, make wildfires more likely and more damaging. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so there would be a little bit, but very rarely would it be linked directly to um, the oil, gas, and coal industries in Canada. A few years ago, um, five or six years ago now, I'm sorry, I don't have the exact date, but Fort McMurray, which is the main town that services the oil sands or tar sands in northern Alberta, uh, large part of Fort McMurray burned to the ground due to wildfire a few years ago. And that really didn't, um, and it was, you know, it was rebuilt and uh, business as usual resumed. Um, and that was uh, including when the NDP, a social democratic government was in power in the province of Alberta. Um, so yeah, unfortunately the link is made in a very um, general way sometimes in uh, in our media and among our political class but it, it is not really led to you know this isn't the first bad bad wildfire season for canada um, although in a number of provinces it's worse than ever this year um, but unfortunately the link has not been made directly to the industries that are causing climate disruption and to the the big uh, interests that are that are driving uh, these industries to continue expanding mm -hmm. How, how is it affecting people you talk to? How bad is it? Um, well, it a little bit depends on which way the wind is blowing um, because, you know, you can have fires in BC and Alberta. Um, a few weeks ago, those fires were leading to uh, the worst air quality in the world in New York City, uh, Toronto, Montreal, with the other side of the North American continent uh, because of the, the weather systems uh, blew the smoke over that way. So sort of the New York media and CNN and the New York Times were suddenly paying attention to wildfires um, in Canada. So there was a big media focus there. But this year, um, Vancouver hasn't had much uh, of the smoke uh, directly in the urban areas here in Southern BC, even though in, in Northern BC and really throughout our province here, uh, it, it's now you know certainly gonna be the worst wildfire season ever. I think the largest wildfire in Canadian history is burning up in the North of the province. Uh, but because the smoke isn't, you know, on days or weeks mm. where the smoke is not directly hitting the, the big urban centers, it doesn't necessarily get discussed um, the way it should. We have recently had um, at least two firefighters, poss possibly a third. It's sort of the last couple of days, firefighters have been killed um, uh, on the front lines of trying to contain these wildfires. So obviously that story is in the news and the, the tragedy of uh, of the workers often very young foreign workers coming in and, you know, way underpaid um, to do this kind of dangerous work. Um, so those deaths have received news coverage, but uh, 
no, it's not always front of mind, and it's definitely not being linked to the ongoing subsidization and expansion of fossil fuel industries in Canada. Is that still a big thing, that those industries are subsidized? It's a thing, yes. Um, we have a, a federal government um, sort of rhetorically committed to transitioning off of fossil fuels. They don't phrase it that way. Um, they've, they've sort of released a sustainable jobs plan uh, that was originally going to be called uh, a Ministry of Just Transition. Um, so not like a ministry for the future, um, like in the novel we're going to be chatting about a little bit, but it was to be a ministry sort of explicitly about um, protecting the workers and supporting the communities that would, um, as we, uh, we as a country shifted off of fossil fuels onto different energy sources, they've renamed it... Um, they've taken the transition word out of there and they just talk about sustainable jobs um, now. But uh, even as they've been doing that sort of progressive stream of legislation looking ahead, um, they have continued to approve big fossil fuel projects, continue to allow subsidies. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the provincial level, where a lot of the resource policy um, actually happens th through the provincial governments in Canada, um, they have continued uh, sort of full board with subsidies um, and just preferential, you know, improving royalty mm. schemes, tax breaks. Um, to give an example here in the province where I am in British Columbia, we have a social democratic government that actually for the first four years of its uh, current mandate was supported in power by the Green Party here. They had an agreement for a majority with the Green Party. Um, and despite that, uh, during that time, they improved the... Um, was not improved, they worsened. <laughs> they they added extra um, subsidies to the LNG industry. They gave, uh, you know, they cut the royalties demanded of these LNG uh, and fract fracking um, companies so that they would invest in the province. Uh, so in other words, they, they took the previous right-wing government's uh, offers to the oil and gas companies and improved them. They offered more tax breaks, more subsidies, um, so in that sense, it's it's quite grim when even the the one province in our whole country that is governed by a nominally left left of center government uh, continues sort of on most fronts to continue to uh, to approve new pipelines um, to allow the export of thermal coal, which I know is a big issue in Australia. Uh, BC is also a big center of thermal coal exports. It's the largest coal port in uh, on the west coast of the Americas, the Western Hemisphere. Um, that kind of flies under the radar. That issue doesn't get a lot of press at all, even in the, even among more progressive Canadians. Um, so our role as a thermal coal exporter is not really talked about um, at all. Yeah, it's so similar. <laughs> uh, to so that's uh, yeah, it's so similar to Australia. You know, the 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 resources curse in a way, and this kind of two bob each way approach. They said we say we're going to have a transition, but then we subsidize the old. Um, form of profitable energy. And I saw in the paper that your energy minister, I think we're environment minister, who used to be the head of Greenpeace. So I thought, oh, that's hopeful. But he's now in Europe arguing for a complete phase out of fossil fuels on a global scale. Is that, is, are things moving there? Uh, well, I mean, people in the environmental movement in Quebec would not have uh, great things to say now, I would say, about uh, Stéphane Guibault, just because of his sort of, he, he plays a role on the one hand internationally, seeming to take um, progressive positions and certainly better positions 
than a lot of other um, governments at these summits, but uh, domestically continues to approve um, new export projects um, and continues to continues to allow the oil and gas companies to um, to expand um, what they're doing. And you know, there's no talk from someone like Stefan Gibo and the Liberal government of the real. It's not just that we have to get rid of fossil fuel subsidies. We have to be talking about nationalizing. Um, these industries so that they can, that's how you get a just transition is by actually taking uh, public and democratic control of these industries and winding them down in a plan, in a planned way. Um, so yeah, and there's no one in the mainstream political class in Canada that is talking about nationalizing uh, mm. fossil fuel industries at all. Um, so yeah, it's interesting that you say that nobody talks about coal exports in Australia or that, you know, sort of below the radar, but here in Canada, when people do raise the issue on the few occasions where it's gotten into the headlines, why is BC exporting thermal coal? Uh, the industry leaders and the, you know, the capitalists making all the money off this, they'll say, well, if we don't export it, Australia will just export it uh, or Indonesia, or, you know, it's mm -hmm. always um, that race to the bottom mentality that yeah. if, if Canada doesn't uh, dig up all of its fossil fuels and sell them, other jurisdictions will. Um, and it's often so-called progressive governments making those arguments. So mm. it's really important, uh, you know, your show, for example, and, and activists in general to connect with each other um, internationally so that we can compare notes and, and fight back and have our own uh, coordinated talking points. Because I, I think... That's right, yeah. because business is globalised. But activism mm. is often very localised and we don't even see that other people are doing it. Let's get on to the Ministry for the Future because I was really delighted to hear that you love that book because I do too. Um, why do you think it's a socialist vision? Listeners might know this book. It's a novel by Kim Stanley Robinson and it's about um, after the Paris Peace um, Climate Talks, they invented a new ministry for the future and the head of it is a kind of person like Mary Robinson her name's Mary. Why do you think it's a socialist vision? Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's not because of Mary. The is it Murphy now? I escaped, yeah, a typical Irish named bureaucrat is sort of at the head of it, and it appears kind of this sleepy bureaucracy. It's set in Switzerland, um, but there's all of these other things going on in his novel. Um, well, I mean, I did an interview with Kim Stanley Robinson for Jacobin, and it was, you know, I think I reached out to him um, and thought about doing the interview before I'd even gotten a fifth of the way through the book. It's a big read. Mm. Um, it's a big book. And it's, you know, I mean, as a novel, there's things I would critique about it or storylines I thought weren't fully fleshed out and that. But it, it was just so unique as an imaginative exercise. And Kim Stanley Robinson, I've been a fan of his work for a long time. But in this novel, he just does something that no one else has done um, basically, which is to project a medium term future where things sort of work out. Um, <laughs> he's trying to imagine the next 30 years. So it's a history of the future really in the form of a novel where in these, by deploying all these different strategies and these different groups acting in their different ways, um, we get to a state where, you know, the climate crisis is not solved in his novel by 2050 but there's at least a chance uh, for humans to make a go of it. And his book and him himself, when I interviewed him, you know, he knew I was a socialist coming at it from that perspective. Uh, I think the term he used was more, he was trying to imagine a post-capitalist 
um, uh, a route to a post-capitalist uh, society. And you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna get post-capitalism in the time frame needed to avert the worst of the climate crisis. So he's he's also just trying to imagine a series of steps that would help humans collectively get the um, the climate crisis under control. So, I mean, I think it's a it's what he, the the overall takeaway from that novel, I think it leads to socialist conclusion. Um, because on the one hand, it is very internationalist. I mean, it's kind of like the worst, uh, <laughs> it kind of takes that right-wing conspiracism about the UN and just says, yeah, yeah, so what? Yeah, we do need the UN to coordinate these things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is, we do have international agreements. We need international collaboration to enforce them. Um, but the really interesting plot lines that I thought could have been developed more are like, there are, um, there's a lot of direct action. There are sort of, um, uh, there's, well, at one point they, they, I don't want to give away the plot of the whole novel, but at one point there emerges a sort of uh, shadowy group of insurgents that are undertaking various kinds of direct action, including, um, including violent actions against like oil CEOs and uh, various big polluters and uh, and whatnot. And it's not clear who's coordinating this group or, or how they're organized. And uh, they, they do things, they carry out things in this novel that are like, could never be pulled off in real life. For example, they take, they basically take everyone at Davos, the World Economic Forum uh, locale there in Switzerland, they take everyone one year hostage. Uh, not to kill them or extort anybody, I don't think. They just sort of want to, they want to re-educate all these elites. Um, so they just sort of subject them to a few days of of propaganda or, you know, explain, explaining how their actions are destroying uh, the climate and the planet. Um, so there's these things that happen in the novel that, um, on the one hand, the novel is hyper-realistic. He's a mm -hmm. very hard science fiction writer, Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, he's trying to like on the there's a whole geo geoengineering plot line mm -hmm. that takes place in Ant Antarctica, and he really tried to base that on, um, you know, his sort of reading of all the latest science yeah. on on that. Um, but some of the action is like unlike, uh, or at least unlikely that any activist groups that are currently existing could pull off. But but yet it yeah. sort of helps helps steer us to uh, to a future that is at least manageable. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waived, $150 for a band or organization, and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. talking to Derek O'Keefe in Canada about imagining the system change that will stop climate change. A little quote, because I think you, you'll find this um, adds to it, what we're saying. Um, it's on page 189, if listeners want to look it up. The head of the ministry is at a meeting of world bankers, and she says they can't do this quantitative easing. They can't do that for the rapid, rapid transition like we did in the great financial crisis you know you can't just quantitatively ease your way to a rapid transition but then she says this something's got to be done it's the vital work of our time if we don't 
fund a rapid drawdown, if we don't take the immense amount of capital that flows around the world looking for the highest rate of return and redirect it into decarbonizing work, well, civilization could crash. So that's the quote. And I just going back to that financing of everything, what do you think is the vital work of our time in relation to this financial system? That's, that's so hard to answer because of all the things that is hard to imagine, it's hard to imagine, hard to imagine. Uh, so this book is largely motivated by uh, this Fred, Fred Jameson quote that is ubiquitous now. It's harder to imagine the end of the world. It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. So Kim Stanley Robinson is trying to imagine the end of capitalism to imagine a world that doesn't end. Um, but I think of all the like things that socialists try to imagine or the all sort of counter proposals we try to make as to how a society would run, uh, finance, uh, global globalized finance and banking is sort of the hardest um, to fathom. Um, that's why I really appreciated the the whole plot of of this UN bureaucrat lobbying the world banks and the uh, the sort of national uh, directors of finance in every country urging them to create carbon coins or you know to um, quantitatively carbon quantitative easing mm -hmm. which would essentially mean creating money but only for the purpose of decarbonizing decarbonizing um, rather than creating money to bail out banks that have gone insolvent um, yeah so but in terms of how our movements can tackle that um, it's hard like there do is it just about shifting money into uh into different kinds of banking, our own sort of member controlled credit unions? Uh, is it about creating public banks, uh, different types of finance? I mean, I, you've got to nationalize the banks at, at some point. That's just that's just the bottom line. Um, I don't know how, how that can be done at scale uh, or how pressure can be exerted at scale. Right now in Canada, there's a big effort to get people to divest um, their personal accounts and investments from RBC, which is one of our biggest banks, the Royal Bank of Canada, because specifically because they play such a key role in, in financing the tar sands and other fossil fuels. So, I mean, I think that's a good campaign, but I don't, and I haven't seen, and globally divestment is a big thing in the climate movement, but I mean, that alone is not going to uh, change the financial system, um, I guess is the argument. I would try to articulate, or the point I would try to articulate. Yeah, I struggle. I struggle with that question, so it's important. It's an important one to raise. Yeah, well, in Australia, a lot of direct action has been recently stopping the flow of goods, and I was surprised these young people sort of suspended themselves over the ports in four cities. But it wasn't just the coal port, which is our big one, is Newcastle. It wasn't just the export of coal, which we are very responsible for, and gas, but it was also the import, you know, the container ships. There are these container ports, and the, this young woman, I interviewed her up on this pole, and she just said, look, it's it's all just stuff that gets thrown in the waste. It's just consumerism that we're being co-opted into, you know, making and consuming. And I wondered, in your country, First Nations people seem to be leading a lot on this sort of issue and climate campaigners, um, how are they confronting this sort of, you know, high carbon imports and high carbon exports and just profiting rather than keeping all of that, um, tamping that down so that 
you know, as we know, we've got rich countries like Australia and Canada, we're living on the shoulders of all the poorer countries, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. And I wonder where to start with that. I mean, I know that New South Wales and British Columbia, I think were both founded in the, around gold brushes around the same time. Anyway, both both of our settler colonial states that we live in were products of, of British colonialism uh, in different ways. Um, but at least of what I know, because the question of consumer societies and, and wealth and uh, the system, I think it's important to start from the fact that at least when British Columbia came into existence here, we supplanted or sometimes disease came ahead of the settlers, but colonialism uh, supplanted and dispossessed uh, what were very wealthy societies in a different way. You know, before we measured wealth just by GDP, which is such a bizarre way to do it, um, these were societies with enormous uh, food sources, just endless salmon uh, and shellfish and then endless food resources uh, compared to what we have today. Uh, much larger amounts of, of free time, uh, of, of freedom in the sense of not not having the time demands that capitalist society imposes on all of us. So on the one hand, yeah, of course, uh, colonialism impoverished indigenous peoples, but it also important to remember that it has dispossessed uh, and destroyed what were wealthy societies. If, if you measure things in a, by quality of life, uh, by free time compared to compelled time, um, and by just available um, abundance of, uh, of healthy food sources, um, so in British Columbia, uh, First Nations, uh, another important thing about British Columbia is that compared to the rest of Canada, um, which was for the most part covered by treaties between the Crown and First Nations, um, for the, the majority of the landmass of British Columbia is not covered by treaties at all. It's what we refer to here as unceded Indigenous territories. Um, so that means that the legal claims now still operating within a British and Canadian legal system, the legal claims for Indigenous rights are, are very strong. Uh, and there's been a lot of court victories by Indigenous nations. And I would say those legal Indigenous rights are the biggest threat to resource uh, extraction projects in British Columbia. Um, and in, in many of these cases, the First Nations have been at the leadership. So they're sort of the moral leadership of the environmental movement, uh, moral and ethical leadership, but also the sort of strongest legal case mechanism to stop these projects. Um, but the oil companies are very sophisticated at um, at adapting to this. The oil and gas industry has started to figure out, you know, ways to uh, to make financial agreements with segments of the indigenous uh, nations themselves to get so-called agreements, uh, which is really just a way of dispersing some money. Uh, and they approach these nations and say, look, this is happening. Do you want to receive money from it or not? It's not a re real free and informed mm consent that they're seeking from indigenous nations. Um, but yes, I think what the, the coal activists, the anti-coal activists and the, the blockaders there in Australia have done is really inspiring um, because there are young people putting themselves on the line. Um, and so when I learned by listening to your show and, and reading your email there about what had happened, I looked it up and you know what they did there in Australia resonated around the whole world. It was picked up um, in the media everywhere and we know that the legal consequences for this type of action will will escalate as as the movements become a bigger threat to to capital so um yeah i salute what what people did there and the courage that people have shown um and i think it is important to make the connections between the type of society we want 
uh, and the type of consumer model we're locked in. Um, and and as you say, not just to be, we're not just against exports of fossil fuels. We have to question this whole model. And um, on the coast of British Columbia here, there's actually a recent case of, so our ports are supposedly full. They're maxed out because we're shipping so much coal uh, and we're importing so many consumer products because we're the gateway to all of Canada and uh, from the Pacific. Um, it's the ports here on the West Coast. They, they say they need to basically double the size of Vancouver's port, um, our main facility. They're putting in this whole new terminal. And the federal government there with Minister Guibault, formerly of Greenpeace, uh, recently approved this project. It's called the Roberts Bank Terminal 2, um, which is actually going to create a whole floating, uh, basically they're building uh, an island to connect to this other peninsula for a giant new cargo terminal port. Um, even though that that, that, um, that new facility is right near the estuary of the last major uh, salmon-bearing river, the Fraser River, uh, where a lot of the big salmon runs um, start their journey back from the ocean up to the river. Um, so, and not to mention the orcas and all the other marine life that will be threatened by this project. So the federal liberals, who on the one hand are committed to biodiversity uh, on the international level, they're committed to climate action and biodiversity when they go to these international conferences, but on the other hand, they're committed to economic growth. So when they announced this new port expansion, they just said we had no choice. You know, because every time these progressive governments have a, have the dilemma of biodiversity and climate action or economic growth, they always choose economic growth. This is the this is the religion of our times and of this dominant global system. Yeah. Well, so, do you think yeah. it's um, going to collapse? I mean, people say capitalism has all these crises, but it always seems to be bailed out or brought up again. And I'd like to hinge this around the media. Because I think the media is a big part of the problem. <clears throat> it certainly is here, shaping our minds into a kind of passive, you know, it's going to happen anyway, nothing we can do idea. <clears throat> and I think even social media is operative here. It's very colourful, but it gets people very anxious, very sort of overheated and ill-informed when I speak. You know, it's kind of these slogans and nothing like a a, a blueprint for the way forward in their minds so what do you think the corporate media's effect on climate action courage in Canada is you know how do they affect people's ability to react and how strong is independent media like your one a ricochet yeah there's a lot of elements to the question you you just asked because um I also come from that left left tradition that we have always had a strong critique of corporate media um, but the right now what's happening in Canada, and of course, we, I still have that critique and the, uh, the editorial boards of corporate media are, are terrible. Um, and that does have a, a negative effect on societal awareness, on politics. Um, but the other thing that's happening is that corporate media sources are collapsing so that local news, um, publications are collapsing. The, a lot of good journalists who are trying their best within this corrupt corporate media, um, model are getting laid off and losing losing positions so there's just less um serious reporting being done anywhere um so yes i, I share the critique of corporate media but i think it's even more urgent now because in the past we would advocate for independent media and one of the reasons we started ricochet media which is a, a national it started out as a bilingual project with activists in quebec and activists in the rest of canada 
Um, and it started out really to counteract the negative coverage of a, a major Quebec student strike in 2012 um, that became a, a huge social movement, probably the biggest social movement, a most effective one in Canada in the last couple decades. Um, but it was just so vilified in the corporate media that we decided to sort of start this new outlet. But now I think we just need a lot more independent media because the traditional corporate news is collapsing and local yeah. news outlets in particular are collapsing. So we need yeah, we need informed citizens and we need people who can think in, um, think uh, about the whole system. Uh, they can understand what's happening at their local political level, but they can connect that to a sort of systemic view uh, of the world and these forces we're up against. So yeah, I do think longer form sources of independent media are really important. And in Canada, we have, a, um, I would say, a growing sector of really high quality environmental news sites a few worth mentioning would be the narwhal uh the tai oh, yeah. I know a, lot, a lot of the good ones are named after marine mammals yeah. uh or marine animals sorry the tai yeah. is a, a yeah. type of salmon um and uh the narwhal of course is an iconic uh charismatic creature in the <laughs> threatened in the arctic yeah. um yeah the narwhal is excellent i mean they do very very in-depth coverage but i think we just need more we need local outlets that can replace yeah. the collapsing uh, you know, the daily newspaper that used to, on the one hand, shape people's opinions, often in a fairly conservative way. But on the other hand, it at least informed the citizenry. Um, okay. And I think people are people are lacking that now. So that would be my long way of answering your question. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yaru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you listen to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Derek, we've been talking a lot about collapsing, collapsing media, collapsing ecosystems, collapsing, but... I think you are of the belief that capitalism itself is collapsing and that certainly that class of people who are just shifting their money around the world looking for profit, even if it's disaster capitalism, they're going to keep going. They know it's toxic. They've got children probably climbing up those barricades, but nothing will stop them. There's a momentum there. But do you think it's, it's going to come to an end of itself? Is that how you see it or how? what do you think will happen? Um no, I, I wouldn't say I think it's collapsing. I think I, I've i been using the term terminal capitalism, um, but terminal not because I think the system is going to collapse on itself, but I would say capitalism in this, this phase is terminal in the sense that it is destroying the basis of, of life on the planet. And I think the biggest capitalists uh, and most people, I would say, on some level are aware that this system is a life destroying system, a planet destroying system. And yet there's no real attempt to, there's not going to be a real attempt to stop it. So we see this in a couple different ways. You see uh, billionaires uh, proliferating with these uh, bunker uh, vacation homes that are also bunkers in the event of, uh, of collapse or in the event of societal breakdown, they have like fortified homes to retreat to um, and you know, private security, private army. So that sort of prep prepperism of the of the ruling class and the billionaires. That's one thing. Uh, on the other hand, you see like the space uh, venture capital 
uh, rhetoric of, of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that these most the, the wealthiest, most powerful capitalists in the world are the ones promoting um, uh, evacuating the planet. Like that's their <laughs> that's their long term plan in as much as they have one, because they I think on some level they're conscious that their system is destroying the earth. Um, but I don't think that means that capitalism necessarily collapses. It, it, I think the system can continue to find speculative speculative bubbles until, I mean, until life itself on on Earth becomes untenable. Uh, okay, so I, I don't think it. I don't think it collapses on its own. I think you have to replace it. I think you would have to to overthrow it and create a different model, or at least have enough places, enough jurisdict jurisdictions commit themselves to a to a more sustainable model, and you somehow. Well, that's you somehow our job. That's our yeah. job. As you, we've started with Kim Stanley Robinson, the vision yeah. for the future. Just in a few minutes, can you sort of paint some sort of picture of the way out? A lot of people talk about degrowth. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean the the word degrowth comes from Andre Gortz, who was a French thinker who who first coined decroissance in this context. And when he was defining the term, he was talking about how. Um, Degrowth should mean that as technology improves productivity, uh, workers should become richer. Uh, he actually used the word richer, and he meant richer in the sense of having more time, more leisure, and more control over our lives. Um, so I think I'm not sure that that's the word that is going to resonate with a lot of people, but it's certainly the thinking behind degrowth points in the right direction in the sense that we have to we have to pull down the the super rich and the billionaire class. Uh, we have to end that kind of just completely wasteful spending that happens at the top. Um, there was a paper that just came out about how carbon taxes should be divided between high carbon taxes on luxury goods and low common, uh, carbon taxes on um, on essential goods for, for working people. So I think anything like that is, is the correct approach. I would just call it socialist or eco-socialist. I think that's a good uh, word and set of ideas to advance. But I think, yeah, there'll be diverse solutions and diverse ways of expressing it. And of course, indigenous peoples have uh, have knowledges and ways of living that go back tens of thousands of years that can inform the, uh, the type of change we need. Um, yeah, what I really liked about Kim Stanley Robinson's book and why I think we need more writers to sort of do this kind of speculative fiction where we imagine 50 years, 100 years down the road, something like a livable, sustainable earth is because I think the, the sort of cynicism and nihilism of the ruling class and these billionaires who kind of know on some level, at least, <laughs> it seems as though they do. Like, I, I guess here's an example. You, you know the film uh, Don't Look Up, where the comet is, mm. is coming to hit the earth. Um, now, I'm going to give a spoiler. I trust that most of your listen listeners have got to the end. Yeah. Anyway. Spoiler if you're still planning to watch Don't Look Up and haven't seen it. But at the very end, the sort of Elon Musk Bezos character who had convinced people he could shoot down the comet before it hit Earth, uh, realized that they weren't going to be able to, his system had failed and they weren't going to be able to shoot down the Earth. He sneaks out of the room and uh, it's not at all a surprise or a twist that he snuck out of the room because he had a capsule to leave Earth and go off to another planet. Like that started the ending. And I just thought it was so predictable because everything about our present reality um like everybody sort of knows that the dominant system is destroying the planet and therefore the 
the ruling class's only solution is to leave the planet. I think it's up to us more than ever as people who believe in an alternative to advance to people this idea that there is a future. Uh, you know, we often talk about uh, doing, traditionally the climate movement would be, you know, do this for your grandchildren. But I think we have to be more ambitious and, and learn from indigenous traditions where, you know, mm -hmm. do this for seven generations down the road, do this for 10 generations, 100 generations. Like we should be taking these kinds of actions because we believe society should still exist um, in a thousand years, in a hundred thousand years. Like we should be the ones who are optimistic about the future rather than cave into this kind of cynicism uh, in which it, it is easier to imagine. Uh, the end of the world. It's so easy to imagine the end of the world these days that we we have a duty to yeah. um, to kind of re rekindle this uh, utopian imagination that the socialist movements of the world used to produce more of this type of writing uh, and theater and, and film and just where we sort of take ownership and say, no, no, your, Elon Musk's view of the future is nonsense. Yeah, uh, it's self-serving self-serving impossibility and and it means allowing the earth to be destroyed and we reject that yeah it's not about the the consciousness of elon musk colonizing the multiverse or whatever his supposed yeah. vision of the future is it's about uh you know saving the only home that we have uh, yeah. in this vast universe which is which is earth so and yeah. i think that can sound overly idealistic and and people people associate utopia with with unrealistic thinking, but I think we have a responsibility to actually put out there a positive, uh, positive possibilities if we take these kind of courageous actions uh, today. <laughs> Fantastic, thank you very much. That's Derek O'Keefe. He's a writer and an activist in Vancouver, Canada, and his uh, publication is called Ricochet. Thanks very much, Derek. It's been terrific talking to you. A pleasure to speak with you, Vivian. Thank you for connecting with me. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is ours. Out the ground, killing everything around. Turn the grass to black and brown, there's a danger up ahead. Building pipelines across the land, spilling all that black tar sand. Truly is a vital plan. There's a danger up ahead. There's a danger, danger up ahead. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. 
It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organization, and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. Good afternoon, this is Simon Walker and you're listening to the Climate Action Show on 3CR Radio. I'm joined today by Rhys Pianta, who is a spokesperson for the Invasive Species Council, an environmental organisation dedicated to strengthening the biosecurity of Australia and reducing the threat of invasive species. Now, when it comes to international travel and trade imports, Australia has some of the strictest biosecurity laws in the world. And for good reason. One particularly harmful species has managed to run rampant on the East Coast for over 20 years, the fire ant. Since 2001, fire ants have maintained strongholds in and around Brisbane, despite government efforts to eradicate them. With funding due to end in December 2024, federal and state agricultural ministers are convening to decide the fate of the eradication programme. The Invasive Species Council are calling on the general public to make their voices heard in this meeting, as the spread of fire ants across Australia could bring disastrous results. Reese, thank you for being on the show with me today. Thanks for having me on, Simon. So I've been looking at the Invasive Species Council website and what is completely dominating it right now is this problem with fire ants. Uh, It's clearly been a problem for a while now. Why are the fire ants so destructive to local environments? Yeah, well, fire ants will have a huge impact on Australia if they breach containment and become widespread. And uh, particularly for uh, our habitat and wildlife, um, we know that anything that uh, nests on the ground or gives birth to live young on the ground, uh, it can be, uh, uh, food can be predated on by fire ants. So um, particularly what we've seen in the United States recently is um, uh, lizards and amphibians and um, surprisingly uh, turtles as well um, uh, are populations that have been really impacted by fire ants. Um, they outcompete native insects and ants um, and they are um, a problem for plant life as well because they get into root systems and actually um, can cause the, the the death of vegetation. So they're a big problem for um, a lot of things that uh, occur naturally in Australia. So a lot of our wildlife will be impacted by fire mm. ants. It's hard to map the impacts because there are just so many. It's hard to believe. Yeah, so I've had a look at some of your posts back from 2017, uh, just when this deal was coming through by the agricultural ministers, a multi-million dollar deal. Uh, 10 years it was supposed to go on for, and there's a lot of positivity, a lot lot to be celebrating. We're now six years into that deal, and the problem is looking a bit more desperate. Why hasn't the eradication program been successful thus far? So it's interesting um, that the eradication program has succeeded in some ways, but failed in some important ones. So the most important one, obviously, is that fire ants aren't eradicated and aren't anywhere near being eradicated. But the ways that the program has succeeded has been that the spread has been contained. So in the United States, fire ants are spreading at about 48 kilometres per year. 
uh, moving into new parts of that continent. And in the in Asia, so in China in particular, they're moving in about 80 kilometres a year, spreading into new areas. Well, in Australia, over the last 20 years, the spread of fire ants has been contained to about five kilometres per year. So they're still contained in the area of southern Queensland. But our concern is that um, the deal that was made in 2017 actually didn't allocate enough resources and didn't and underestimated the scale of the challenge that fire and eradication will take. So there's tactics that work. We know how to contain fire ants. We've been the most successful country in the world at managing this aggressive invasive species. Uh, what we're now saying is that more resources need to be allocated onto the tactics that work so that they can be scaled up and we can finally eradicate fire ants over the next 10 to 15 years. Okay, so the eradication program has actually been quite successful, but we're now finding ourselves in a situation where the ministers are thinking of defunding the program. What could this mean um, for the future of our Australian environments? Yeah, so if there wasn't an eradication or if eradication was stopped entirely, we would see over the next 10 or 15 years, instead of fire ants being removed from Australia and the threat that they pose being stopped, we would see them spreading to most of eastern Australia. So we know that they would reach uh, Sydney in about the next 10 years. And we know that over the next 15 or so years, they would actually be able to inhabit almost all of mainland Australia and most of Tasmania as well, because Australia is very climatically suitable for fire ants. And um, so that would be a huge problem for the environment, but it would also be a big problem for our agriculture, tourism sectors, and uh, importantly, human health. At least 85 people in the United States have died from fire ant attacks. So we would see hundreds of thousands of extra uh, hospital visits and medical interventions required from humans interacting with fire ants. So really, it's a really it's it's a question of what do we want to spend money on? Do we want to spend money on trying to stop the threat fire ants pose, or do we want to spend money on trying to learn how to live with them and manage them, understanding that they will affect so many different parts of our of our life and our society. And, and the continent of Australia. We think it's a bit of a no-brainer that eradication is the right way to go. Yeah, so I guess prevention measures will always outweigh that of the long-term costs that would come with letting the fire ants grow and wreak havoc across Australia through the uh, hospitalizations and just the money needed to maintain the environments. So, as you said, Australia has some of the most perfect climates for fire ants to thrive. How could climate change contribute to this even more? Yeah, so it is interesting. Um, I remember about 10, 12 years ago being at a, a climate conference and talking to people about fire ants and people were saying, well, uh, why are we talking about fire ants when climate change is this huge issue that we've got to face? And I thought about that Fire ants are actually one of the outcomes of our failure to deal with climate change over the past several decades. What we've seen from studies in the United States is that um, the impact of uh, climate change actually expands dramatically the range that invasive species and particularly invasive species like fire ants can occupy. So 
Australia was already quite climatically suitable, but most of the northern United States, uh, northern America, northern American continent is not climatically suitable. But there's a combination of a warming climate and the adaptability of fire ants is meaning that they can inhabit areas that we never really expected them to. From beaches up to snowy mountain tops, they're starting to show. Uh, they're starting to show that they're they're able to go into those areas, wow. um, which is surprising. You know, it's it it really it talks to the resilience of fire ants as a species, and it also talks to the the many many impacts that humans are having on the climate of the planet and the way we're changing the way our planet works. Um, so it increases the range that fire ants can inhabit. The habitable places. Uh, as the Earth's climate changes, we will see fire ants being able to inhabit more and more continents. Um, I can see them being in places in Europe as the as the Earth warms. And importantly, one that isn't often considered is fire ants use extreme weather events to spread from place to place. They're really adept at um, rafting during flooding. And in southern Queensland and in northern New South Wales, Flooding events are fairly regular, so they they quite they quite like that as a way to to spread and find new places to have colonies. Drought events also work well for fire ants because they can get spread from place to place in fodder and feed. So as humans take feed to dry communities, fire ants are actually able to stow away in that cargo and find new places to inhabit as well. So the effects of climate change on invasive species are going to be huge and they're going to we're going to see more and more of this not just for fire ants but for invasive weeds and other pests as well over the coming decades wow it's incredible to hear about the versatility of these fire ants and finding out just how you know they're such a small creature but even through uh extreme weather events they actually they actually prefer these events they prefer these conditions to be able to thrive to be able to travel and to be able to fill in, like you said, fill in those gaps of animals that have actually died from those events. So climate change is a huge deal for them. It can mean that when other animals die due to the extreme heat or the weather events that come with it, the fire ants can actually take over. Yeah, they can. And they're, they're great at displacing and out-competing uh, the the species that they find in a new area they've moved into. And interestingly, humans are one of the species that they've started to displace in the southern United States. We've had reports of um, some farmers abandoning their land because fire ants have made it unproductive. So wow. uh, we finally found an effect of climate change right now that is yeah. actually displacing humans uh, from areas that we used to inhabit. Wow. So without a doubt, the fire ants are going to be becoming more of a problem for Australians and the environment, particularly as climate change intensifies. What can listeners do at this point to join the fight in eradicating the fire ants? Obviously, we have this meeting coming up with the agricultural ministers where they will decide whether the funding will continue. But whether that's a good result or bad result, we don't know yet. Nonetheless, what can listeners do to join the fight? Well, the most important one is um, if we're talking to our elected representatives about this, so contacting your local MP, because 
the decision will be about whether or not we continue with eradication. But if the decision is made to continue with eradication, then we need to remain committed to that over the next 10 or 15 years. And that's something that's often quite hard for governments to do. They they tend to like the flavour of the month and uh, we can get fire ants a lot of attention for the fire ant issue over a short period of time, but keeping governments committed and on mission there is going to be hard. So we're going to need to keep talking to our elected representatives about that. Um, the other thing we really need to do is for people in uh, risk areas, so northern New South Wales, southern Queensland, or even people with proximity to, uh, you know, areas where trade occurs, areas where shipments of cargo and goods come and go, keep an eye out for not just fire ants, but things in your environment around you that look like they're a bit out of place. And contact uh, the, usually it's the Department of Agriculture in your state that actually responds to these things. So that's one of the ways we can manage invasive species is to all of us act as citizen scientists as surveillance points. Because if something looks strange, often we find that quickly, but it's about making sure that people in power know that that's a problem, know that that's there. So identifying and reporting is the key thing that we can all do. And we can all participate in that. We've got a program on our um, on our website, invasives.org.au, which is um, called Bug Hunt. And that's encouraging people of all ages to actually act as citizen scientists and find and report, uh, particularly insects in this case, but it goes for weeds and other things that look out of place in our community. Brilliant. Reese. thank you for being on the show with me today. Thanks for your time and your interest. Really appreciate it. This is Simon Walker. You've been listening to the Climate Action Show on 3CR Radio. I've just been speaking with Rhys Pianta regarding the problem with the fire ants. The decision regarding the eradication program will be finalised on Thursday, the 13th of July. Now, although this is a problem currently localised around Brisbane, a lot of people may be feeling like it's not something that directly affects them. But with climate change, very similar to climate change, while it may not seem like a problem right now, it very much is. And the best thing that we can do is to try and prevent it at all costs. As we said, as the fire ants continue to grow, it could lead to hospitalizations up and down the country. Fire ants are a venomous species. And although they're not hugely venomous to humans, I think a lot of people would agree that Australia does not need any more invasive, uh, in, uh, venomous species. Venomous and invasive species. So if you want to get more involved and have your say about the fire ant problem, you can go over to the Invasive Species Council website. It's uh, invasives.org.au. And as Reese said, they have a lot of information there regarding the fire ants, uh, a lot of cool activities you can get involved in. And best thing to do is try and get in touch with your local councillors and ministers and show them how much of a problem this really is. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you soon. Thanks tonight to Derek O'Keefe in Vancouver. He's the founder of Ricochet News Online, and you can find links in the podcast summary. Thank you to Simon Walker for his riveting interview with Rhys Pianto from Invasive Species Australia.
check out the summary in the um, notes to learn how you can be a citizen scientist and eradicate these fire ants. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.